There's a story New Hampshire likes to tell about its famous presidential primary. The story goes that this state makes better presidents. This is a state that asks candidates to come and look people in the eye and shake the hand and to share the heart. And I like that kind of campaigning. That if you want to be president, you better spend a lot of time here. I think winning New Hampshire to me would be a tremendous honor. That the New Hampshire primary is democracy at its finest. Your voice can change the outcome of the New Hampshire election. Your choice can choose the next leader of the free world. That's a nice story. But we're going to tell you a different one. This is a story about power and what people will do to keep it. A story about how and why one small state has gotten the first crack at picking presidents for so long. Because here's the secret. Here in New Hampshire, we know how valuable this primary is, how much power it gives us. We're not giving that up. The most important thing that we can do is to save the New Hampshire primary, because without the primary, what is New Hampshire? The first in the nation primary is New Hampshire's most powerful institution. It gives a lot of people in this state an incredible amount of influence and access. There's like an unspoken rule in politics around here. You don't question the first in the nation primary. But that's exactly what we are going to do. This is Stranglehold, a podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio about what happens when one small state gets its hands around our presidential elections and won't let go. I'm Jack Rodolico, and I'm an investigative reporter. I'm Lauren Chuljan, and I'm a political reporter. And we're going to do a thing with this podcast that a lot of people in this state don't want us to do. Examine this sacred institution with a healthy dose of skepticism. And for our first episode, we are going to take a hard look at a guy with a powerful reputation around here. He's known as the guardian of the New Hampshire primary. But while some people consider him to be an icon... Others consider him a problem. We would not have this primary day if it were not for Bill Gardner. He is the savior, the guardian of what we have here in New Hampshire, and we can be everlastingly grateful to him. I like him as an ambassador for our first in the nation primary, much more than I like him as a secretary of state. Bill Gardner's passion comes from perpetuating the cult of personality of Bill Gardner. People know the good Bill. People do not know the bad Bill. Who's the real Bill Gardner? Wow. Donald Trump is in New Hampshire. It's late 2015, in the thick of a competitive presidential primary. And he's bragging about the size of a crowd that's turned out to see him. Some turnout, huh? Sign the paper on the bus. This is a little different than most of them, huh? This is a little different than all of them. How are you, man? Thank you, Bill. Trump was riding high in the polls at this moment, but it's still early in the campaign, so anything could happen. And Trump is in New Hampshire to do a thing that so many powerful people have done before him. He's inside the state capitol building to drop off a check. And there are a lot of people, reporters, fans, photographers, who don't want to miss it. 
I missed it. Can we do that again? So we have your check. Okay. It's a cashier's check. I don't think they would have taken mine. They wanted a cashier's check. So this is from a bank that's not actually as rich as we are, right? <laughs> Every four years, it's voters in New Hampshire who cast the first ballots in a presidential campaign cycle. And the results of that election have altered history. No joke. If you win here, you could be on a fast track to the White House. Which is why Trump is making a big deal about handing over a check for a thousand bucks to the state of New Hampshire. Because it's this check that gets his name on the first in the nation primary ballot. I like it. Where do you want me to sign, Bill? You, uh, this is a declaration. Bill is Secretary of State Bill Gardner. It's his job to take these thousand dollar checks from wannabe presidents, making sure they sign the correct forms often in front of a sea of cameras. That means Bill Gardner has stood shoulder to shoulder with hundreds of powerful people, senators, governors, congressmen, even a reality TV star. They all come to Gardner's office. This is his show, and he's been doing it for decades. And these candidates, they must know that they're more powerful than Bill Gardner. But that's not how they act when they walk in here. Many are straight up reverential to Gardner. For example, when Barack Obama walked in here, he bowed to Bill Gardner. It was a joke, but everybody got it. Secretary of State is a big job in New Hampshire. Gardner oversees things like elections, campaign finance, state archives, and a lot more. But there's one part of this job that's earned Gardner his reputation as the guardian. He sets the date of the first in the nation primary. That means the political world functions by his watch. Campaigns, reporters, voters, they all follow the calendar that he sets. And he can make that pronouncement anytime he wants. No one will take it away from us. It will only be the will of the people here not to have it anymore. Because we're going to have it. We can, we do it. We wanted to ask Gardner about this power, about his long career, more than 40 years in the same job, about how he's kept New Hampshire first. But he wouldn't sit down to do an interview with us. In fact, he told us he would only talk to us after he sets the date of the 2020 presidential primary. When will he set that date? Well, no one knows. He alone will make the call. So instead, we listened to hours of old interviews with Gardner. We read 40 years of news coverage about him. And we relied on NHPR's own reporting and interviews with the people who know him best. People like Jim Normand, who was there for the beginning of Gardner's long career. It was the early 1970s. Well, Secretary Gardner was Billy. So it was Billy Gardner. Presidential elections were not on Gardner's radar back then. Norman remembers that time, right after Watergate. You know, the wounds were still so sore about our president lying to us repeatedly, committing crimes. There was a thought that, boy, can't America do so much better than that? Norman met Gardner at the State House. They were both recently elected Democratic state representatives, and Gardner was just a couple years out of college. And Norman says Gardner was a real serious guy, really nice, congenial, but very serious. He listened really intently. Gardner was fascinated by history and was into all kinds of different things, from hunting to chicken farming. Well, Bill's a thinker. He's not a he's not a glad hander. He's not a backslapper. You're not gonna necessarily, you know, have a lot of fun at a party with Bill, but you'll have a really good discussion. There was a crew of young guys in the New Hampshire legislature around this time, and they remember Gardner as idealistic. He believed politics and government were for the service of others. When I was in college, 
I wanted to vote desperately. I had two high school classmates killed in Vietnam, but I couldn't vote. I couldn't vote all through college because you had to be 21. And I made that a major effort for me personally about reducing the age for people to vote, that if you can die for your country, you ought to be able to vote for the policies that make that happen. As a state rep, Gardner backed policies that made it easier to vote, easier for younger people to run for state Senate. So he started making a name for himself as a reformer. But there was only so much he could do. He was new, and his party, the Democrats, were in the minority at the time. And then something happened. New Hampshire's long-serving Secretary of State died. The Secretary of State's office oversees all state elections. It has a major influence over how the legislature drafts election bills. If Gardner wanted to reform election policies, this was the place to do it. But getting into that office, that would not be easy. In New Hampshire, the Secretary of State is elected by lawmakers. Republicans ran the state then, and Gardner was a Democrat. There was a big push in the Republican Party to just elect Republicans. There was a big push to have uh, folks be locked in and and being commanded to uh, vote in the Republican Party for Republicans. And Gardner, a relative rookie, was going up against an old, well-known Republican. It seemed like the deck was stacked against him. But without many people noticing, Gardner found a path. He campaigned quietly, spending time with some of the older Republican lawmakers. Gardner was genuinely interested in people's backgrounds, their heritage, their history, what wars their family members fought in. And the older members ate that up. Some of them were country folks, and Bill was interested in chickens. He was interested in poultry. Some of them were hunters, and Bill had an interest in hunting. Bill just does that. He nurtures relationships with people. Gardner drove all over the state, going door to door, making his pitch to all these Republican lawmakers. Apparently, he made his case to one guy while he milked cows at 5.30 in the morning. I said two things. I said that I would not use the position for a political stepping stone. In a lot of states, it's like that. You just serve for one year, but the whole time you're there, you're looking at something else. And that that it would be a neutral corner in state government and that everyone would be treated the same way. So Gardner secured the votes of the young reformers in the legislature, and he leaned on his relationships with old guys. And it worked. He was elected New Hampshire's Secretary of State, an office with no term limits. It was clear that Bill had an interest as this being his life work. It was almost like going into the monastery, I would say. Gardner moved into a corner office in the State House. He was just up the hall from the legislature, a few doors down from the governor. That was in 1976, and he was 28 years old. Now, he's 71. And this is where Gardner's destiny becomes intertwined with the New Hampshire primary. See, New Hampshire's primary has been first in the presidential nominating calendar since 1920, but it wasn't until the 1970s right around the time Gardner came to power, that other states started trying to jump the line. And that freaked out lawmakers here. You have to understand, the New Hampshire primary is powerful because it's first. So having other states hold elections on the same day, that would mean the candidates, the reporters, they'd have to split time between all these states, totally draining New Hampshire's influence. So lawmakers were trying to figure out how to cement New Hampshire's status as first in the nation. And they decided to hand that authority to the secretary of state. It was now Gardner's job 
by law to keep an eye on other states who were thinking of jumping ahead. And a few years later, lawmakers would tighten up that law further. And still today, according to our state law, the New Hampshire primary must be a week before any similar election. Now, technically, this is a state law, so other states don't have to follow it. But that doesn't matter to Bill Gardner. To him, this law is everything. It helps him protect what so many people see as New Hampshire's most important tradition. And over the years, Gardner would take that role very seriously. And we understand the concerns in other states. You might think that that it's not fair that one state goes first all these times. Well, it's maybe not fair that A is the first letter of the alphabet or Sunday's the first day of the week or January's the first month. But it was something that was decided a long time ago before any of us alive today can remember. This and task, putting a date on the calendar every four years, it's allowed Gardner to look like some kind of grand political puppeteer. He sets a date and then history's made. Now, it hasn't always been easy to pin down that date. There were a few years when New Hampshire did have to fight hard to stay first in the nation. And it was Gardner who would come out of those fights looking like he single-handedly saved the primary. 1999 was one of those years where people in New Hampshire genuinely believed this could be it. This could be the end of the New Hampshire primary as we know it. The 2000 primary was right around the corner. Republicans like George W. Bush and John McCain, Democrats like Al Gore and Bill Bradley were all out on the trail. But behind the scenes, there was a problem with the state of Iowa, of all places. And people in New Hampshire were freaking out. Holy buckets. It was... It was a, it was interesting. Rob Tully led the Iowa Democratic Party back in 99, and so he was deeply involved in this whole thing. And he had to dig pretty deep for these memories. And tell me who the Secretary of State was. Bill Gardner. Oh, for God's sakes, is he still the Secretary of State? You better believe it. God bless him. If you're listening to this podcast in Iowa, okay, we've reached your moment, yes. It is true that you guys are actually first. Iowa is the first caucus. Iowans gather in meetings, churches, or halls based on their party affiliation to pick candidates. But we're first, too, though. We're the first primary. New Hampshire is the first moment in the presidential nominating calendar where voters actually go into a voting booth and cast a ballot for a candidate. All this to say, being first means a lot to us, and it means a lot to them. We both jealously protect that status. We both have laws meant to keep other states away from us. And that's because it seems that every four years, someone tries to kick one or both of us out of the spotlight. And that's what was happening in 1999. Iowa and New Hampshire both felt threatened. Some other states were trying to move their elections earlier. And there were rumors the national political parties wanted to take more control over the whole nomination calendar. So party leaders in Iowa and New Hampshire decided to form a pact. They held a press conference and everything because they figured it would be harder for anyone to take them both down. You can't have infighting in the family because then other people are going to start coming in and taking the kids. But despite this alliance, the rumors were getting to Bill Gardner. Gardner's now in his early 50s. He'd overseen five New Hampshire primaries. And without consulting Iowa or, frankly, any New Hampshire politicians, Gardner announced that the 2000 New Hampshire primary would be held 
the day after the Iowa caucus. This blew up the image of a so-called alliance. It totally ignored Iowa's law, which keeps New Hampshire eight days away from them. People in both parties, in both states, were stunned. They started pleading with Gardner immediately. Like, you got to be kidding me, Bill. You can't just pick another date. But Gardner wouldn't budge. And now that all-important Iowa-New Hampshire alliance was on the line. And so was the primary. Kathy Sullivan was the head of the New Hampshire Democratic Party, and she started imagining disaster scenarios at the Democratic National Committee. Oh, yeah. At the time, I thought, oh, my God, I was saying this is a disaster. We're going to go before, you know, go to the DNC. They're going to say, what's the matter with you people? You can't agree on a date. You know, here you are. You have this, you know, sort of this privilege of being first in the nation primary, first in the nation caucus. You guys can't even agree on that. It was decided that the only way out of this was to meet face to face, Iowa and New Hampshire in secret. Joe Keefe represented New Hampshire at the DNC at the time. He's also on the NHPR board, by the way. But he offered up his house. And the Iowa guys, they booked their plane tickets. Everyone sat in my living room. um, And uh, I think at one point in time, we had sandwiches brought in and they were put out on my dining room table. This room was packed with political heavyweights. Heads of both parties from both states, both secretaries of state, even a former New Hampshire Republican governor. They were all sitting around Keefe's living room. And most people in this room, they wanted the same thing. They wanted Gardner to pick a new date. Right. So we get there. Um, we have some pleasantries, et cetera. And then, boom, we get into it. Steve Dupree, then head of the New Hampshire Republican Party, he remembers the Iowa argument. Basically, their pitch was, we can't move the date because the Iowa Pork Producers Convention has this big arena booked in Des Moines, I think, and they can't possibly move. Okay, so 20 years later, there is a dispute about just how big of a sticking point this pork thing was. But pork clearly is a big deal in Iowa. Yeah, no, this thing is huge. You know, you got to remember the National Pork Producers is here in Des Moines. And so we're the innovators around the world. They bring, you know, people from fucking China and all this place. This whole pig situation was going to take up a lot of hotel and meeting space that they'd need for the caucus. And they'd already done so much work. To do that all over again, Tully was exasperated. Towns and cities oversee voting locations in New Hampshire, so most of the work here is done. Gardner just picks a date, and the world turns. Bill had no idea how much work there goes into what we have to do. Mm -hmm. And to do a caucus, it's hard work. Primary, you just fucking pick a date. Excuse my French there. I mean, you just pick a date. That's it. Gardner listened, and Bill just said, no, I'm not moving it. Bill Gardner, when he sets the date, that's it. He does not change. And I did not understand how important that was to him. It seemed like no argument, no appeal to reason, no um, openness to compromise would work. Basically, it came down to this. I'm just going to cut to the chase. This is bullshit. We're New Hampshire, and God damn it, you shouldn't move. <laughs> this is, you know, I don't give a shit about Iowa. Patience was wearing thin. Gardner was really getting the best of one person in particular, Chet Culver, his Iowa counterpart. And I don't think Chet Culver, Secretary of State, or someone who wanted to run for governor someday, and he did, wanted to be the person who lost the Iowa caucuses. So I think he was very, very frustrated. And just so you can get an image of this, Bill Gardner is kind of a bookish guy, thin, favors cardigan sweater vests. Chet Culver, he was a tight end for Virginia Tech. Some tempers flaring. I remember Secretary of State Culver at one point um, 
get, getting pretty hot under the collar. Um, he, and he's a big guy. <laughs> when, when he starts yelling, you notice. <laughs> and he started to yell. <laughs> okay, this is so funny you say that because there's a bit in Bill Gardner's book where it says, um, the meeting lasted over two and a half hours with a friendly exchange of views, except at one point, the tension in the room became so great, Joe Keefe nearly had to restrain one of the visiting out-of-state house guests. Is that true? That would be Chet Culver. <laughs> I don't know if he insulted Chet or, or, or what, but yeah, Chet was just beside himself. <laughs> he he can get angry. That's right, Joe. I remember Joe literally had to put his arms around him. Oh God. The meeting ended pretty soon after that. People in New Hampshire kept trying to push Gardner. There was even talk of the legislature stripping some of his power to set the date. But it didn't happen. Gardner wouldn't budge. And in the end, it was Iowa who backed down. And even though Gardner started this whole problem in the first place, one of the New Hampshire Republicans in the room, Steve Dupree, he says this story shows just why Gardner is such an effective guardian of the primary. There was a lot of pressure on Bill, and he didn't. I really didn't even blink. <laughs> uh, you know, some will say he's a curmudgeon, he's inflexible, but he was doing what he thought was right to defend the supremacy of the primary. It turned out he was right. But to others in that room, especially the guys from Iowa, it felt like Gardner's stubbornness was more about pride than doing what was best for everyone. It was, and I got to tell you, I, I have never, literally have never had a weirder encounter than that. But it's a beautiful story for the Granite State. See? We didn't flinch. Okay, I have to tell you one more thing about this fight that makes this whole thing just so Gardner. Remember the pigs and how Iowa said they couldn't move the caucus because it would conflict with this big pork convention? Well, Gardner to this day says Iowa made the whole thing up. Oh, yes, Iowa deliberately misled him. He called it a hoax. But he's wrong about that. There was a pork conference. None of this is about how to pick the best president. But these squabbles keep the New Hampshire primary first in the nation. Gardner comes out on top after fights, and that gives him a lot of power. But when the primary is over and the confetti is swept away, Gardner is still secretary of state. And his critics around here say his reputation as protector of the primary gives him cover for some puzzling decisions. When you've got someone basically standing naked on an island and you ask him to address these issues, he can't. And he couldn't. We'll get to that in a moment. Let me tell you about the closest we got to an interview with Bill Gardner for this podcast. I dropped by the statehouse a few months ago. I caught him right after he'd spoken at a forum for state election officials. And at first, it was clear. He didn't want to talk. Um, You don't need anything else, do you? I had heard about Bill Gardner from other reporters. Anyone can just walk into his office, and members of the public often do. But I've also been told that once you're in there— Anything can happen. Gardner could refuse to talk 
or let you weigh in. Like, he'll keep you for hours talking about the Magna Carta or Jackie Robinson. And during my visit, I thought for sure I was going to be shut out. And then he starts questioning me, asking me why I think Americans don't trust the election process. Why? Why did people have that negative feeling about it before the election? Why? I don't know. That's what they heard from people. So it's a perception problem. Obviously, it's what they heard. Maybe from you. From me? You mean the media? From, from you. What do you mean me? <laughs> I'm not sure what you mean. I'll just say maybe you. It, it wasn't from any of us. Okay. Okay, I'm a little confused by that, but I, I, take it, I take it that that's important to you. I don't know what Gardner was trying to tell me that day in his office, but I think I understand where it came from. For Gardner, voting is not just about the New Hampshire primary. It's about the sanctity of the ballot box. And here's a guy who learned the hard way how seriously Gardner takes that belief. I was disgusted with the whole process. This is Andy Langlaw. His story begins in a voting booth during a state election in 2014. Basically, Langlaw didn't like his choices for the U.S. Senate, so he decided to write in a candidate, someone he knew. When I came to the senator portion, I really didn't have a good choice there, so I just wrote in my dog's name, Akira. Andy voted for his dog. And to put a finer point on his disgust, You should know something about Akira. She was dead. You know how you only have one good pet in your life? You know, one really good stunning pet? It was her for me. She sounds like she'd make a great senator. She was that dog that always gave you her toy. Always. Even right up to the end, she'd bring you her toy. So, when Langlaw went into the ballot box and voted for a dead German shepherd for the United States Senate... He took a picture of his ballot. Then he posted it to Facebook with a note. Quote, because all of the candidates suck, I did a write-in of Akira, my now-deceased dog. It was absolutely nothing to me. I didn't think anything about it. Why wouldn't you be able to take a picture of it? And then he got a phone call. On the other end of the line was someone from the New Hampshire Attorney General's office. Andy was being investigated. Not for voting for a dead dog. That was perfectly legal. His crime was taking a picture of his ballot and posting it, a ballot selfie, and it made national news. Most of the laws were written before social media came around. They are rarely enforced. But if you live in the state of New Hampshire, you better pay attention to this. The Secretary of State's office is reportedly investigating violations from last month's primary. I say police. The New Hampshire legislature had recently passed the selfie ban, and that ban had Gardner's blessing. At this point in his career, Gardner was almost 40 years into his tenure, well-established as the state's top election official. And he was deeply opposed to selfies in the voting booth. The whole point is to let people vote their conscience. That's the point. The way Gardner saw it, this law protected people from voter intimidation. That person, the little person, who wants to just be able to go in and whether it's a domineering spouse or someone who has some influence in their life and someone says, you've got to vote this way and, 
And if you don't show me, because I know you can show me now, it's legal, I'm going to know that you didn't vote that way. So what does that person do? Now, bear in mind, there was zero, zero evidence of anyone using ballot selfies to intimidate voters in New Hampshire. But either way, Langlaw and a few others were facing fines. The ACLU caught wind of all this. They felt there was a clear free speech case here. And they determined that New Hampshire was the first state to explicitly and intentionally ban online ballot selfies. And Gardner, as the state's top election official, he was the face of it. So they took him to federal court. Let's talk about Hitler and Saddam Hussein. All right. (laughs) Attorney Bill Christie worked on this case. It was his job to sit in a windowless conference room with Gardner and to drill down on what motivated him to enforce this law. And we expected an answer along the lines of, you know, people's privacy or people might be uncomfortable in the polling place uh, if there's cameras. But that's not what Gardner wanted to talk about. I have a copy of uh, the last ballot that was used when Saddam Hussein was elected. And that ballot identified who the person was. In public and in his deposition, too, Gardner kept name-dropping dictators, Hitler, Hussein, Stalin, again and again and again, how they all used ballots to track down voters and intimidate them, because Gardner worries that the slightest puncture in the sanctity of the ballot box, that could be the first step down a slippery slope towards dictatorship, right here in New Hampshire. Hitler did the same thing in Austria. There's been the struggle over the years to intimidate voters in different ways. Gardner's dictator defense doesn't get very far in court. First, the district court strikes it down. There's an appeal, so the case goes to the First Circuit Court of Appeals. And there, a judge was like, why is the state bothering to prosecute a guy who just voted for his dog? The the guy uh, who says, vote for my dog. uh, Yes, exactly. I mean, it's sort of self-evident that that's political dissatisfaction speech. And yet they choose to investigate that. So the second court dismisses the case, too. But Gardner and the state's lawyers weren't done yet. They take ballot selfies to the United States Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, we're not taking this case. To spend any amount of taxpayer money on any investigation for a dude that posted a ballot about his dog seems to me a little bit of a waste, and taxpayers should probably be a little upset, maybe even ask for a refund. These court fights aren't cheap. It costs the state a lot of money to defend Gardner's argument. If voters feel like a politician wasted a bunch of money, they have the option of voting him or her out of office. But Bill Gardner doesn't answer directly to the public. He answers to 424 legislators who've worked just down the hall from him for the past 43 years. And state lawmakers, they've been confronted with evidence that he isn't running his office in the most efficient and accountable way. I was aware and not surprised that the secretary of state's position was that this was his kingdom and no one else had the right to tell him what to do or how to do it. Marjorie Smith is a Democrat like Gardner. 
She's a longtime representative in the State House, and in 2008, she was on a panel of lawmakers responsible for digging through an audit of Gardner's office. Here's just a sampling of the problems the audit found. Gardner's office had hired the family members of senior management. His IT systems were highly vulnerable to a systemic breakdown. There were problems with money, how the department tracked it, protected it, stored it, and spent it. For example, Gardner's office was given a big pot of federal money, meant to help people with disabilities vote. His office spent one million of those dollars to build an addition to the state archives building. And this audit came 10 years after another one found other problems with how Gardner's office managed money. Gardner shrugged it all off. He called the audits unqualified. Well, I think that the Secretary of State saw these questions as challenges to him, as an insult to him that anyone would think to challenge him. Marjorie Smith sees a larger problem here. Audits are a normal part of holding a government office accountable. It's not personal. And the lawmakers who put Gardner in office, they seem to ignore the evidence that there are some real problems with how Gardner fulfills his duties as Secretary of State. One seems to be able to tolerate all kinds of things as long as New Hampshire continues to be the first in the nation. And give your name for the record. William Gardner. You are the Secretary of State, Mr. Gardner? Yes. Take an oath of office. It's 2017, and Bill Gardner is back in court. In this case, Gardner was accused of exerting his influence against someone who he thinks has wronged him. You took an oath of office, correct? That's correct. Okay. And he's going to have an uncomfortable time explaining his actions under oath. We work for the people, period. That's what we do. That's our role as public servants. Gardner's office hired a consultant, and at a certain point, Gardner ordered his department to stop paying that consultant for work he had done. So the consultant is suing to get the money he says the state owes him. The bigger situation that started all this is a bit more complicated. Remember, Gardner's powers are broad, and his office had been at odds with this particular company that provided insurance to public employees. Gardner and this company had been battling on and on, and he'd mostly prevailed in court. It wasn't enough for Bill. This is Mike Kutu, the consultant who Gardner was accused of stiffing. Kutu is an insurance and financial expert, and Gardner's office hired him to make sure the company in question was making changes to how it did business. But Kutu says behind the scenes, essentially, Gardner was turning a legal battle into a vindictive personal grievance. And then when I challenged Bill, he directed his vindictiveness to me. I became the subject matter of his ill feelings. Early on, Kutu realized he didn't like the way Gardner operated. For example, Gardner didn't read emails. To be clear, Gardner has an email address. It was just that Kutu would send emails to Gardner and get no response. So Kutu changed his tactics. He would write an email, print it, and then hand deliver it to Gardner. A couple of times he instructed me to rip up the email. He read it, but then instructed me to rip it up. He didn't want to, didn't want to have a record that he had actually received it. An important part of Gardner's job is to archive and track important state records. But I've spoken with three attorneys who've taken Gardner to court. 
And they all say when they try to get records from Gardner, specifically his records, like emails, they can't, that he doesn't leave a paper trail. And Larry Gormley, Kutu's attorney, thinks that's a deliberate tactic on Gardner's part. So he is a guy that doesn't want his finger, he wants to run everything, but doesn't want his fingerprints on anything. Gormley grilled Gardner in court. I only have what I've told you. You only have one shred of paper. Not, no. You didn't communicate with anyone, sent anyone an email that said... It's, it's remarkable. I've, I've never seen any public official with absolutely no written trail. Kutu believed Gardner was in the wrong, not just about the way he conducted business, but the way he was trying to take down this company. So in March 2015, Kutu decided he had to deliver some tough news to his boss, but Gardner wasn't having it. I had all the projections, all the work was done, and Bill would not even look at it. Uh, I mean, it was apparent he just wasn't interested. And now Kutu was losing his patience. He confronted Bill Gardner. He told the Secretary of State, you are not acting in good faith. Bill got very red face, very heated, pointed to me and said, you, 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 multiple times, you, 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 you tell me I'm not acting in good faith, you're not acting in good faith, meaning Mike Kutu is not acting in good faith, which is absurd, absolutely absurd. This would become the central point of Kutu's lawsuit against Gardner. Gardner insisted that in that moment, Kutu stood up and quit. But Mike Kutu says he didn't quit. He kept working for months after this. And another witness in the room said Kutu didn't quit. But in court, Gardner said he felt like Kutu quit. Gardner repeated this line again and again on the witness stand. I felt that he quit. I believe that... He had quit. To me, that meant he quit. And I acted accordingly. That wasn't my question. My question is simply... And it was just this circular, almost idiotic response. It was was inexplicable. It was gibberish. So, frankly, it became fairly easy. Because when you've got someone basically standing naked on an island and you ask him to address these issues, he can't. And he couldn't. You're sure, Mr. Gardner, it's not that you devised a way to punish Kutu, that you could get work from him and you knew you weren't going to pay him for it, right? That is absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. I would never do something like that. I never have. Gardner, under oath, would admit that he was the one who ordered the state not to pay Kutu, but he rejected that he did it as some form of punishment. I have respect for people who challenge me. I like having people around me who challenge me. That's not the way I operate. In the end, Gardner lost this case. The state was forced to pay Kutu the $23,000 Gardner had refused him. Plus, the state had to reimburse Kutu's attorney's fees. That cost another $154,000. And according to the attorney general's office, State lawyers spent a lot of time on this case, 1,494 hours. That, that kind of behavior says to me that this is a man that does not believe he's ever stepped out of line or over the line. And therefore, you know, should not be questioned. 
If any lawmaker raised an eyebrow about this case or what it said about Gardner's fitness to do his job, they didn't say it loudly. But just a few months later, Gardner would do something that Democrats around here just couldn't ignore. And it would lead to the biggest political challenge of Gardner's career. New Hampshire Secretary of State Bill Gardner. Thank you. We'll be right back. Please be seated. Thank you. After he got elected, President Donald Trump seemed to be obsessed with voter fraud. He'd bring it up a lot on Twitter, in a private meeting on Capitol Hill. And he claimed without evidence that millions of illegal votes were cast for Hillary Clinton, his opponent. He even singled out New Hampshire, where he claimed, again, with no evidence, that buses of people from Massachusetts would drive up here to vote. Trump was so concerned about this, he decided to pull together a commission to investigate voter fraud. We want to make America great again. We have to protect the integrity of the vote and our voters. It was called the Presidential Advisory Commission on Election Integrity. Everyone just calls it the Trump Voter Fraud Commission. And President Trump asked Secretary of State Bill Gardner to be on it. Gardner said yes. The first meeting was held in D.C., and it had all the trappings of official White House business, presidential seal, lots of dark suits. And there's Bill Gardner, a few seats away from Vice President Mike Pence. With that, it'd be my my privilege to uh, uh, recognize the longest serving secretary of state uh, in American history, New Hampshire's secretary of state, uh, Bill Gardner. Secretary Gardner, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Vice Chairman. I look forward to the work we have ahead. After our federal constitution... So consider what this looks like. Voter fraud is a hugely partisan issue. This panel is formed by a Republican White House. So what will Gardner, a registered Democrat, who for 40 years has overseen every New Hampshire election, what will he say to the world? But it has been my belief over many years of administering elections that we will see an increase in voter turnout only when we, when the when ease of voting is balanced with security and integrity. Making voter voting easier by itself does not result in higher turnout. The point Gardner makes in front of C-SPAN cameras is one that Democrats have been fighting against for years. People back home in New Hampshire were watching all this unfold, and many Democrats around here were furious. When the Republican Party began this utterly fraudulent notion that voter fraud was affecting New Hampshire's balloting and the outcome of our elections, um, he should have stood up and said, no, there is absolutely no evidence for that. Peter Burling was a longtime New Hampshire lawmaker. He felt by just being on this panel Gardner, and thus the state of New Hampshire, was endorsing Trump's unfounded claims about voter fraud. This wasn't the first time Gardner pissed off some Democrats. Burling says they had for years grumbled in private that Gardner seemed to take the GOP side on a lot of election issues. And remember, Republicans were in the majority at the statehouse for most of Gardner's tenure. So he couldn't get reelected without their support. I believe, I now believe, that what Bill was trying to do was not say anything 
that would offend his Republican electors. And uh, he was very good at doing that. Control of the state house has flipped between the parties recently, but the 2016 election brought the first Republican governor in more than a decade. That meant Republicans now had the power they needed to go ahead and change the state's voting laws. So they got to work. Republicans backed a bill to tighten voter registration rules, something that, according to them, would ensure integrity in elections. But Democrats argued that bill would block college students from voting. And Gardner, he testified at the state house in favor of the Republican position. So, yeah, just to rephrase, so you don't, you, you don't view this as an attempt to suppress or control of certain voting segment uh, for the benefit of one party? No, I don't. Now this, this is a striking moment in the arc of Bill Gardner's career. He started in the Vietnam era as a guy who wanted young people to be able to vote. And now college students are showing up at the state house to protest a bill he supports. And Gardner, he seems bewildered. It's amazing to me some of the passion that somehow this is this terrible thing to do to the people. But I just don't see it. The list of people who are frustrated with Gardner is starting to grow. Like Liz Tentarelli, the president of the New Hampshire chapter of the League of Women Voters, a 100-year-old nonpartisan voting rights organization. My league colleagues in other states talk about we're going to have more early voting, we have online voting, we have mail-in voting, and I just drool. And I say, there is no way this is going to happen while Mr. Gardner is there. They say, well, which one of those isn't going to happen? I say none of them are going to happen while Mr. Gardner is there. As an elections watchdog, Liz Tentarelli has kept an eye on Gardner for a long time, and she's observed one important change in him over the years. There may have been a time when he didn't take a partisan stand on election laws, at least not publicly, a time when, as he promised when he first ran for the Secretary of State's office, he kept that office a neutral corner in state government. But Tentarelli says that time is over. There's no doubt in her mind that Gardner, a Democrat, now supports Republican positions on voting rights. I like him as an ambassador for our first in the nation primary much more than I like him as a Secretary of State, frankly. All this frustration that had been building up privately over the years, the moment Gardner announced he would join Trump's voter fraud commission, it started spilling out in public. What was Bill doing on that? I have no idea. And the hard part is I don't think he had an idea of what he was doing. The White House decided to hold the second meeting of the voter fraud commission here in New Hampshire in a room at a college that's famous around here for hosting presidential candidates. Protesters swarmed outside. A uh, shame on you, Bill Gardner. He's our Secretary of State, at least that's what I'm led to believe, and he should not be involved in this charade. Up until this point in his career, national coverage about Gardner is almost exclusively about the New Hampshire primary. It's often fawning, it's positive, it's kitschy. He's the charming master of ceremonies of our famous tradition. But the Trump Commission was a big story about a hyper-partisan controversy. So reporters around the country were watching. Jessica Huseman is a ProPublica reporter who covers election law. She's something of a Secretary of State expert. She called up Gardner to interview him about the commission. And I said something like, 
you know, it doesn't really seem like you guys have achieved that much. And he just flew off the handle. He started screaming at me. At one point, he referenced Mussolini. Like, he talked about Mussolini for maybe five minutes. And it was just like, it was completely bonkers. I was not able to use a single thing that he said in that hour-long interview because none of it made any sense at all. When questioned about why he joined this thing, Gardner insisted it's better to be at the table than on the menu, meaning he wanted New Hampshire to be included. But before long, there was nothing to be included in. The Voter Fraud Commission was bogged down in lawsuits and was disbanded. And when Gardner's already on his heels, something unprecedented happens. Two Democrats, so members of his own party, announce they'll run against Gardner for the office he's held since 1976. One challenger is a long shot who eventually drops out, but the other's a real threat. He recently ran for governor. He's much younger than Gardner, well-funded and well-known in the party. Democrats are now in a jam. They're torn between two options, two people from their own party. But you know who comes out for Gardner and force? The Republicans. This will be the only time that you will ever hear me endorsing a Democrat. (laughs) Bill Gardner is the guardian of the New Hampshire first in the nation primary. Gardner's fate would be decided where it all began on the floor of the New Hampshire State House. December of last year, the legislature gathered again, like they do every two years, to vote on the office of Secretary of State. The joint convention will come to order. The joint convention has been formed for the purpose of electing the constitutional officers of Secretary of State and State Treasurer. Over the last four decades, the Secretary of State election has been pro forma. Gardner mostly ran unopposed, and the few times he was seriously challenged, he won. But today, there's tension in this room. Most Republicans seem to be backing Gardner, but Democrats, who are in the majority in the legislature now, they're really split. Some are Gardner diehards. Others have been turned off by the Trump commission. So the outcome of how they'll vote for Gardner is far from certain. Lawmakers take turns stepping up to the mic to make their pitch. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker and members of the Joint Convention. I deeply respect and regard Secretary Bill Gardner, and he will always, always hold a place in New Hampshire history, and I also know it's time for new leadership. I know we all feel the weight of history in this vote, and for many of us, the weight of friendship. A lot of Democrats are stepping up, explaining why they just can't back Gardner anymore. I've known Bill Gardner for 45 years. I attended his wedding reception. However, I will not be voting to re-elect Bill Gardner as Secretary of State. But he's not losing all Democrats. Life's about one thing, guys. It's about relationships. And those last a lifetime. No term limit on relationships. No term limit on relationships. You make them, you keep them, and for the rest of your life, you work together. Gardner's supporters keep fighting for him. They invoke his experience, his dedication, his longevity. I would like to see Bill finish his career gracefully and be in office for the 100th anniversary of the New Hampshire primary, which he has worked so hard to preserve. And now we come to the balloting process, and let me go over. It takes a while, more than an hour. 
when the votes come in, the room gets quiet fast. 416 votes were cast. 209 votes were needed to win the nomination. The results are as follows. There was one scattered vote, 207 votes for Colin Van Austin, 208 votes for William Gardner. Now, Gardner got one more vote than his opponent, but he didn't win. He needs a clear majority of all votes, and he was just one vote shy of that. This is unprecedented. For the first time in his career, Gardner's future as Secretary of State is hanging by a thread. And now everyone is going to have to vote again. Just a few lawmakers are allowed to speak this time. This is their final chance to make the case. And one of the most powerful Republicans in the state house, he tells everyone in the room, it's not just Gardner who's on the line here. All right, my friends. Bill Gardner has preserved our first-in-the-nation status. An experiment with anyone else undermines that first-in-the-nation status, which is not only important to New Hampshire, but it's important to the United States of America. There are people in this room whose lives have been changed because of the access they have to presidential candidates. This is no exaggeration. There are Republicans in this room right now who joined the Trump campaign early And they went from no-name lawmakers to being on a first-name basis with the leader of the free world. Plenty of others in this room now brand themselves as ambassadors to the world for the New Hampshire primary. Everyone gets what's at stake here. Now it's time to vote again. More than 400 votes cast, one at a time. It takes so long. The members from Divisions 1 and 5 may vote. All this time, during all this debating and wrangling, Bill Gardner is just down the hall in the same office where he takes pictures with presidential candidates. His supporters have been coming in and out. There's a table with cookies and a punch bowl. The mood in there shifts throughout the day. Sometimes it's like the moments before a surprise party. Others, it's like a wake. The House will come to order and we'll tend to the vote on the office of Secretary of State. Gardner himself is stoic. He doesn't say much. He just listens to a live stream of the proceedings from down the hall. The vote is as follows. Scattered, one. I got to meet that guy. Um, For Colin Van Austin, 205. For William Gardner, 209. I'm very, very grateful for those of you who let this happen. Gardner takes the mic. He seems humbled. Thank you. I have... I'm anxious, and I'd like to ask all of you, particularly the new ones, I'm just down the hall, come in. I welcome any ideas, even modern ideas. (laughs) So, thank you. But just a few minutes later, he's caught by a scrum of reporters. 
He's got cameras in his face. He's being peppered with questions. What can you promise the people of New Hampshire going forward? Promise them what? what I, I, I promise them that I'll do, I'll use the same judgment that I've used in the past. Gardner is in the middle of serving his 22nd term in office. And the political world at this moment is still waiting for him to announce the date of the 2020 primary. Next week on Stranglehold, we tell you the story of the campaign that wrote the playbook for every New Hampshire primary that followed. And I said to my wife, this guy has got some balls. Good guts. I, I love this guy. I'm going to watch him. To see a video of Barack Obama bowing to Bill Gardner, go to our website, strangleholdpodcast.com. While you're there, look for the picture of Akira, the dog that could have been a senator, riding in the sidecar of a motorcycle. If you check your email, you'll see a good photo of her in the sidecar that I built for her. She used to, she used to like to ride around on the motorcycle. You sent me, yeah. you sent me that photo? Yeah, just now. This episode was reported and produced by me, Jack Rodolico. And me, Lauren Chuljan. And we're very thankful for all the help we've received as we put this podcast together. This episode would not have been possible without reporting by Casey McDermott. And additional reporting help from Josh Rogers. Stranglehold is edited by NHPR's Director of Content Maureen McMurray and News Director Dan Barrick. We had additional editing and production help from Jason Moon. Tony Arnold and Natasha Haverty helped with editing and sound mixing by Hannah McCarthy and Nick Capodice. Jason Moon also created the dope original music in this episode with help from Lucas Anderson. Jack Rodolico is a senior producer. And Lauren Children is NHPR's politics and policy reporter. Rebecca Lavoie is NHPR's digital director. And Sarah Plord made our beautifully aggressive podcast graphics. Oh, and very special thanks to my dad, Barry Children, who we are forever indebted to for helping us come up with the name of this podcast. Additional thanks to Jim LeBeau, Myron Steer the Third, Donna Sytek, Gilles Bissonnette, Paul Toomey, Paula Hodges, Betsy McLean, and Fendel Fulton. Also, John DeStazo, Linda Wertheimer, Andrew Perella, Eva Karchit Peterson, John Clayton, John H. Sununu, Tom Rath, Joe McQuaid, Ned Gordon, Lou D'Alessandro, Dee Stewart, and James Pendle. Stranglehold is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. You know what? They bring their pigs with them, and they had to cancel it this year because they had pig flu.